Ladies, at Essentia Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, October 25th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the countercultural witchcraft music of the 1960s and a study exploring what it is about certain songs that give us a spine-tingling chill. Plus, elephants in Mozambique have evolved to be born without tusks. And the guy who discovered a budget hack for spending just $150 on meals all year. Eat every meal at Six Flags. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There's a line in the TV show Parks and Recreation when the archetypal cynical hipster intern April Ludgate claims that the only music she listens to is German death reggae and Halloween sound effect records from the 1950s and Bette Midler. The joke works because it's so ridiculous, but I am alarmed to report that I am quickly becoming someone who listens predominantly to Halloween sound effect records from the 1950s. I go a bit more broad throughout the 20th century, and alright, it's not all just sound effects, but all of the vintage songs and records are heavy on the sound effects. You'd be surprised how many videos there are on YouTube in which people have compiled Halloween songs from various eras going all the way back to the 1910s. And then, of course, when Kraft Recordings released a bright orange pumpkin-shaped vinyl record of the soundtrack to It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, you know I had to get it. And turns out a lot of the soundtrack is just ambient banging and whooshing and howling noises, which honestly, I dig. The Great Pumpkin cartoon came out in 1966, right at the height of a kind of witchy resurgence in America, not too unlike the one we're seeing again now, or the one around the turn of the 20th century when a lot of those spooky tunes I've been listening to got written. The one in the 1960s, though, went fairly hand-in-hand with the psychedelic counterculture movement and the growth of the music recording industry, which meant an explosion of supernatural elements in mainstream music, as well as an opportunity for smaller, supernaturally-focused artists to make their mark. Atlas Obscura took a look back at some of the era's highlights in an article a few years back. There was, of course, Vincent Price, the king of horror films and, to some, the veritable voice of Halloween— In addition to his slate of starring roles in classics like House of Wax, The Fly, and The Last Man on Earth, not to mention voicing the spine-tingling monologue in Michael Jackson's Thriller, Price put out a 1969 double album called Witchcraft and Magic, Adventures in Demonology. It's a lighthearted play on an instruction manual about how to perform magic, dotted with joking asides by Price, quotes from Macbeth screeched by actresses, and a slew of sound effects to set the scene, making it feel like you're there in a dungeon with Price. Mm, Let me see, now you have your implements, and you have your magic circle, good. Shall we proceed? But remember that magic is not for the faint-hearted. You can't be too careful when dealing with demons. 
And you wouldn't want to spend eternity in the fires of hell now, would you? <laughs> so hard. You stand there in your row. For all of the fun on Price's album, it was very much a performance, storytelling, and not super scary fright fests were popular at the time. The Munsters TV show, first of all, existed alongside Bewitched and The Addams Family, which all debuted in 1964. But the Munsters also put out two albums in the 60s that followed the same sound effects heavy radio play style of Price's Witchcraft and Magic. And the weirder of those two, by the way, called At Home with the Munsters, is being re-released as a Black Friday slash Record Store Day special this year. Link in the show notes in case anyone listening is even marginally as stoked about that as I am. But for how in vogue domestic sitcom monsters were at the time, there were other, more niche communities taking the dark arts incredibly seriously. Louis Hubner's Seduction Through Witchcraft album is a synthesizer-heavy walk through all the basics of love spells and rituals. Quoting Atlas Obscura, A psychic, palm reader, and astrologer since childhood, Hubner had written several books on the occult and had a regular public presence in Los Angeles media, appearing frequently on radio and TV in her capacity as a practitioner of the esoteric arts. In her 30s, when she recorded the album, she cut a rather elegant figure with lush brunette waves and dramatically arched eyebrows, adding to her glamorous, sexy, hippie witch look. End quote. Are you afraid? So are a lot of other people. One of the reasons witchcraft has survived through the ages is because man's need to coerce destiny and subdue the fear within has never subsided. Witchcraft attempts to deceive, cajole, and otherwise disturb natural inclination and occurrences. Witches know about the universal energy of which all things are part. The year before the album was released, Hubner had even been appointed official witch of Los Angeles County at the Hollywood Bowl. Her husky, sensual tones and track titles like Orgies, a Tool of Witchcraft, were very much in line with certain parts of counterculture at the time. As Atlas Obscura put it, the would-be hippies were game with pretty much anything that bucked against the strict societal regimes of the 50s, whether that came in the form of non-Western spirituality, psychedelic drugs, astrology, communal living, open marriages, or anything else, it was all fair game. And the general vibes of witchcraft, flowing hair and clothing, symbology, the outcast nature of witches, being anti-establishment, the connection with nature, it all meshed well with the hippie trends at the time. But there was another album that came out in 1971 that was neither mainstream performance like Price nor sensual immersion like Hubner, but was more matter-of-fact instructional. Also backed by a lot of experimental synth tones, The Hour of the Witch by Gundela the Green Witch, which, by the way, was re-released on bright ectoplasm green vinyl a few years ago, teaches listeners how to perform basic love spells. But rather than ensnaring us like a siren, Gundela offers encouraging advice like anyone can be a witch if you decide to be and that the real magic is inside of you. You know, the candles, the incense, the potions, the eggs, the herbs, these things have no magic. They aren't magical in any way. The magic, the power, is all within you. But these things are important. 
I love Gundella because it turns out, apart from being a witch, she was just an ordinary school teacher and mother from Michigan who threw elaborate themed parties but never served alcohol. Quoting again from Atlas Obscura, The Hour of the Witch isn't sexy or dramatic or space-age hip. It's simply a no-nonsense guide to spellcasting, dictated in the sort of brisk, patient, authoritative voice one might also trust for advice on how to plant tulips or breed spaniels. Giving directions on how to strain a potion, she suggests using cheesecloth or perhaps one of those new disposable coffee filters. It's easy to imagine her maybe wearing the flowered muumuu she sports on the album cover in front of the camera for the Food Network, or a more eldritch version thereof, pleasantly shepherding novice magicians through a recipe. If you don't have fresh eye of newt, she might have said, canned or frozen is fine. End quote. Gundella's album, as well as Price's, Hubner's, and many others from the era, would make great background tunes for haunted houses or tucked away corners of a party. But if you'd rather some more typical music to set the mood for this final week before Halloween, or any time as we ford through the dark winter, Quartz recently put together a playlist of over 700 songs that have been proven by researchers in London to give people the chills. The cause of music giving the listener a feeling of a tingle going down their spine, or perhaps even goosebumps, is something that various scientists have apparently been studying for quite a few years now. And according to Quartz, quote, One prominent assertion is that as we listen to music, our minds are racing ahead to imagine what's coming, and we get chills when our predictions are completely off. Perhaps the dynamic changes unexpectedly, or a surprising instrument slides into the mix. Another possibility is that people who get chills have more connections between the auditory and reward systems in the brain. Still, other scientists have proposed that people who are more empathetic are more prone to experience chills because of emotional contagion, end quote. The newer research from over the summer adds to the hypothesis that most chills-causing songs are sad ones. But more notably, this was one of the few studies that actually ran experiments on participants instead of just being theoretical. And from those experiments, they found that chill-inducing songs tended to be slower and more instrumental, often relaxing, non-danceable, non-electric. Some standout tracks include Prince's Purple Rain, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, Death Cab for Cutie's Someday You Will Be Loved, Enya's Only Time, several versions of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, and a lot of classical music, including several songs that are included on a compilation called Classical Halloween. Chords compiled all 715 songs into a Spotify playlist if you want a chilling playlist to listen to. And the spine-tingling feeling is not universal, like I said. It's kind of like ASMR. You know, some people really feel it for certain things and not for others, and some people not at all. The researchers also note that sometimes the chilling effect happens because of an emotional connection a listener has made with a song, not because of the actual sounds. Still, for how disparate some of the song choices kind of seem on this playlist, they do all kind of go together, especially if you were looking for six days worth of sad boy music. Link for your lugubrious listening is in the show notes.
All right, so this next story is incredibly sad, but also fascinating and maybe ultimately good, at least on one point, if possibly not all around. Basically, researchers have found that elephants in Mozambique's Gorgongosa National Park, after being absolutely annihilated by poachers for decades, have evolved to be born without tusks. Quoting the New York Times, During the Mozambican Civil War from 1977 to 1992, humans killed so many elephants for their lucrative ivory that the animals seemed to have evolved in the space of a generation. Normally, both male and female African elephants have tusks, which are really a pair of massive teeth. But a few are born without them, and under heavy poaching, those few elephants without ivory are more likely to pass on their genes. End quote. Before the war, researchers calculated that one in five female elephants were tuskless, and now it's half. Meanwhile, in well-protected populations, tusklessness hovers as low as just 2%. Among the reasons they believe it is truly a result of natural selection is that the tuskless females have more than five times greater odds of survival, according to the Times. Those females passed the trait onto their daughters, but it's not being seen in males. Instead, the males being passed that gene are dying, sometimes before birth. Ars Technica explains, quote, That's an unusual pattern. Males have only one copy of the X chromosome, while females have two. Thus, any recessive mutation, one that doesn't have an effect if a normal copy of the gene is present, is more likely to be seen in males, since they would only have one copy and thus can't have a normal copy. A dominant mutation, where effects are seen even if a normal copy of the gene is around, would explain the appearance of the phenomenon in females, but then we'd also expect to see it in males. The solution to this confusion is a complex pattern of inheritance, a mutation that causes a visible change in a dominant manner and also causes lethality in a recessive way. So dominant tusklessness explains why we see females without tusks, but the recessive lethality means that any males that might develop without tusks end up dying instead. End quote. In addition to the lethality for males, the lack of tusks is concerning because those tusks are important for elephants' foraging and for defense, ours adds. As study co-author Shane Campbell Stanton, an evolutionary biologist at Princeton University, told the New York Times, quote, I think it's easy when you hear stories like this to come away thinking, oh, everything's fine, they evolved, and now they're better, and they can deal with it. But the truth is that species pay a price for rapid evolution, end quote. Listen, everyone's got to do what they got to do to find the right balance of budgeting, nutrition, scheduling, and cooking expertise for themselves. Far be it from me, the guy who eats as much candy as a six-year-old but also prepares a cheese board with balsamic vinaigrette triscuits almost every single day to pass judgment on anyone else. And honestly, the only judgment I am passing on the dude I'm about to tell you about is pure impressiveness. Mel Magazine recently spoke to a guy named Dylan from Santa Clarita, California, who is bringing all new meaning to the Santa Clarita diet. For the past seven years, Dylan has eaten most of his meals at the Six Flags Magic Mountain Amusement Park. Now, he's not just some Six Flags version of a Disney adult. He just figured out a pretty genius way to save money. As he told Mel, quote, you can pay around $150 for unlimited year-round access to Six Flags, which includes parking and two meals a day. If you time it right, you could eat both lunch and dinner there every day, 
end quote. And for a while, he did. His office is just a five-minute drive from the park. He can see the coasters from his window. So many days he would drive over there for lunch and stop by again on the way home for dinner. He says he doesn't think he ever went to the grocery store the first year that he pulled off his incredible loophole heist. And while he says the move enabled him to pay down his student loans and save money, the food isn't much to write home about. Especially in the first years of his scheme, the park mostly had fast food. Now it's expanded into vegan options, salads, and a few more exciting offerings like a turkey hot dog made to be like a Thanksgiving dinner in hot dog form, which does admittedly sound pretty incredible. Over the years, Dylan's figured out exactly how long during which peak seasons it takes to get to the various restaurants. He avoids Hurricane Harbor so he isn't, quote, the only guy dressed in business casual while everyone else is walking around in swim trunks and bikinis. And even recruited some of his co-workers to get season passes for their meals, too. And for a time, they reviewed all of the amusement park's dining options, weighted, according to Mel, by taste, calorie count, distance from the parking lot, and prep time. To date, Dylan estimates that he's eaten at Six Flags over 2,000 times, meaning his average price per meal would be about 50 cents. Though he goes slightly less often now, just a handful of times a week thanks to having moved in with his wife, Dylan says that the two of them just bought a house nearby, so he has no intentions of stopping his budget-friendly hack. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.